Well, like Pastor Roland said, welcome to Every Nation Church, Las Vegas, everybody. My name is Matt. It's nice to be back in the pulpit or the figurative pulpit because I don't have one. But it's good to be back here. I had spent some time out because we just had our second baby. God has given me enough grace and my wife and childhood has given me enough sleep. So I'm able to share the word of God today. But we're going back to our series called Baggage, because as the video alludes to, we all have a lot to unpack. And in particular, today's topic is going to be something that almost everyone tries to unpack at some point or another, in one way or another. In fact, our culture as a whole tries to unpack this issue, including some of our greatest heroes and heroines. Heroines like Fa Mulan. Now, Mulan obviously was a hero who was raised to be this perfect bride, but she was a perfect warrior instead. But she still had to ask herself, when will my reflection show who I am inside? And of course, another heroine's name is Moana of Motonui. And she wanted to know... What is going on? In fact, I have to write this down. You would think I hear this enough with a three-year-old daughter, but uh, Moana said, I can lead with pride. I can make us strong. I'll be satisfied if I play along. But the voice inside sings a different song. What is wrong with me? We are trying to ask the same question. We are trying to find ourselves. We want to know how to be yourself. How can I be myself? How can you be yourself? How can we be ourselves? When will our reflections show who we are inside? Now, of course, it's easy to point out that we ask this question, but it's very difficult to answer this question. It's difficult and it's complicated. And in our house right now, because we have a newborn, we have new equipment and new baby toys. And some of those things are more complicated than they need to be. But when we have a complicated question on how to use this new equipment, there is a place that we can go. We can go to the manufacturer or to the maker via the instruction manual or via the website to figure out exactly how to use this thing, what it is, how we do it. And thankfully, we have a maker too. So today we're going to go to our maker to answer the question, how can we be ourselves? Join me. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you made us to be individual people with individual purpose, unique in all of history. But God, sometimes we have no idea how to be ourselves. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would cut through the noise in the, in the system and society, or that you would cut through the masks that we wear to help us see the things that we use to create a false identity and free us to be ourselves in you, Lord, I pray that you will create deeper levels of freedom this morning because only you can do it. You're the best one. You know better than anyone who you made us to be. Show us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, one phrase I hear a lot in our society and in our culture is that uh, self-made man, right, or self-made woman. We use it to describe somebody who didn't come from a bunch of privilege or they exceeded expectations through their hard work and effort and ingenuity. It's, it's supposed to be part of the American dream. We want to be self-made men and self-made women. But if we take that literally, there is no such thing as a self-made man. 
There is no such thing as a self-made woman. Did you conceive yourself? Obviously not. You did not conceive yourselves. You did not assist in that conception. That'd be a little weird. This is not back to the future. And you are not Marty McFly. None of us made ourselves. It's true about us as individuals, and it's true about mankind as a whole. We are created by God. This is basic Christian doctrine. It's literally on page one. So let's go to page one. Genesis chapter one, verse 27 says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. As Christians, we believe that God created all of us, and that's extremely significant. We are made in the image of God. That concept in Scripture is so important that they attached a fancy Latin phrase to it. It's imago Dei. Imago is not, if you, sushi fans here, if you eat sushi, you know that egg is tamago. Imago, tamago, different things. Imago Dei means that we are made in the image of God. And because we're made in God's image, we're able to rationalize more than the animals. Most of us can. Uh, we're able to communicate more deeply. We're capable of language. Some animals can like, make beeps and honks and radar sounds, but it's not language. Only humans can rationalize enough and communicate deeply enough to use language. Only humans have profound, deep ways of expression and emotion. Right? This is because we're made in the image of God. There was a group of uh, theologians in the 90s who were often in sync with one another. And they sang, in all of creation, all things great and small, you are the one that surpasses them all. More precious than any diamond or pearl. They broke the mold when you came in this world. I'm talking about in sync. Because God must have spent a little more time on you. But the fact is, God spent a little more time on us as a people. We are the ones who broke the mold. God said, let us make them, man, in his image, and that's it. We're the only ones. And part of being made in the image of God means that we have this self-conscious awareness of our identity and our purpose. That's the result of being made in God's image. And it's not just true about the species. It's true about who we are as individual people. God created us as unique people with unique identities, unique people with unique purposes. David addressed this when he wrote the Psalm 139. This is verse 13 and 14. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My wife, Jerk, and I just had our baby. She's a Six weeks now? How, how? Yeah, six weeks now. So it's very, very fresh. And as parents, all we could do is pray for her every night. But God reaches into the intimacy of the womb to create and knit together each person. This is how intimately involved God wants to be. And this theme of unique and individual creation and identity repeats itself throughout Scripture from the Old Testament into the New to where Paul writes in Ephesians that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This means that before God said, let there be light, he said, let there be you. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he says, for God created us in Christ to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do, in advance of what? In advance of everything. 
This is the kind of individual personhood and individual purpose that God wants us to have. We are unique people with unique purpose that comes from God. So we cannot figure out how to be ourselves by ourselves. We need to go to our manufacturer, to our maker. And instead of trying to create ourselves, we should go to the God who created us. We are meant to receive identity as a gift from God. That's how we're meant to do it. Now, before we go any further, pop quiz. Who wrote the most content in the New Testament? Keep shouting it out. Who said it? Thank you, Caleb. It's not Paul. Paul wrote the most individual books, but by content, word for word, the person who wrote the most in the New Testament is Luke. By the way, the only Gentile author in the Bible. Go team Gentile, I guess. Paul wrote 26% of the content in the New Testament. Luke, between Luke and Acts, wrote 27%. So the main passages from our scripture today will come from the book of Luke. And Luke is a Gentile. He's a doctor. He's a Gentile or a non-Jew, writing primarily to an audience of other Gentile non-Jews. So he has to come to them with a different perspective and worldview. And as Luke writes his gospel, which is very historical, very well thought out, well researched in its presentation of Jesus, he has to answer questions like, who is Jesus and what makes Jesus so unique? What is so unique about the way, which we know now today as Christianity? And we know that Jesus Christ is unique because he's God the Son who became a man and came to earth so he could redeem his fallen creation. That instead of demanding a sacrifice, he became the sacrifice. He died in our place for our sin. None of the Greek gods would have done that. And then Jesus came back three days later. This is extremely unique, and it would have been mind-blowing to a Greek audience. But Jesus is also unique, and Christianity as a whole is unique in its approach to identity. And we can see this starting with Jesus Christ himself. So let's read Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Here's what it says. Now, when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So let's take a break and let's take a step back. And we'll think about the timeline of Luke's gospel here. Because first, Luke chapter 1, the coming of John the Baptist and Jesus prophesied, John the Baptist comes in chapter 1. Jesus comes in chapter 2. Then for the birth of Jesus Christ in chapter 2, we have one event happen in the middle. We'll end there. And then we have the baptism of Christ. And then Jesus starts his public ministry. Jesus doesn't start his public ministry until after he gets baptized. And yet we still see God the Father opening heaven. Now the phrase there in Greek is extremely specific. In Mark, it actually uses the phrase that the heavens were torn asunder. We can read this and interpret it as this is an act of God. We cannot reach up and tear the heavens open between the physical realm and the spiritual realm. God the Father tears heaven open. The voice of God descends. The Holy Spirit descends and rests on Jesus. 
And God the Father declares, this is my son. I'm pleased with him. I know him. I'm happy with him. I love him. And that's before Jesus did a single thing. Before he turned water into wine. Before he made the lame walk and the blind see. Before the dead came to life. Before he did anything noteworthy or significant. God looked in Jesus, at Jesus and said, that's my son and I'm proud of him. I know him. He's mine. Identity didn't come from the things that he did. Identity came from relationship with the Father. Even Jesus received identity as a gift. And if you know me, you know I'm not really big on recycling old cliches, but I just couldn't avoid this one. And a lot of you will know it, so feel free to say it with me. But it's absolutely true that you will never know who you are until you know whose you are. We are meant to find ourselves in God. Identity is not something that we create, but that it's something that we receive from our creator. It's something that comes down from God. But just because we're not meant to create it doesn't mean that we don't try. We definitely try. We try to create our own identity with different masks. We'll talk about that. But first, let's talk about sports. Because there's a lot going on in the sports world right now, isn't there? There was just a heavyweight fight. Tyson Fury, bad man. He's actually a born-again Christian, by the way. I didn't know that. Talks a lot for Christian, but he talks about Jesus too. So we, we believe for sanctification. We thank the Lord for Brother Tyson and all of his fury. <laughs> and the NBA playoffs are still happening. Now, I love it because there's good basketball and they're trying. And my wife is on leave and we get to watch basketball together while she's on leave. Great time. Now, of course, the NFL draft just happened in our city. Eric, the Jets look great on paper, bro. The future is bright. I'm an Eagles fan. And uh, I think A.J. Brown is pretty good as a first-round pick. I'm, I'm just saying. So a lot's happening in the sporting world, and it caused me to think of one of the greatest baseball players of all time. Uh, his nickname was the Yankee Clipper. It is Joe DiMaggio. Three-time Major League Baseball MVP. Nine-time World Series champion. That's insane. Eat your heart out, Tom Brady. Now, I hope he doesn't hear this recording because he's going to take that personally. But this man is a champion. In 1941, he had a, what, a 56-game hit streak. That was 80 years ago. It's still the record. That's a bad man. Now, if none of that makes sense to you, Joe DiMaggio also married Marilyn Monroe. And that makes sense to everybody else. This is a man who is wealthy and successful, and he's got it all, and he's also wearing a mask. An author named uh, Richard Ben Kramer wrote a book about Joe DiMaggio. It was called The Hero's Life. And in it, he detailed Joe DiMaggio's image management. He said he was committed to show nothing but a shiny surface of his own devising. Doesn't that sound like us sometimes? In fact, here's a quote word for word. The story of Joe DiMaggio, the icon, was well known. 
the story of Joe DiMaggio, the man, had been buried. Joe DiMaggio was wearing a mask in spite of all his success. And as a result, who he was as a person was very shallow in spite of all the things he achieved. Joe DiMaggio wore a mask and Satan tempted Jesus Christ to do the same thing. After Jesus was baptized in John chapter 3, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted in, in Luke, excuse me, chapter 4. And of course, Satan, like a heavyweight fight, is probably the greatest spiritual battle of all time. He brings his absolute best to challenge Jesus. So these temptations of Christ, they're layered, and we can probably spend an entire lifetime thinking about them. But you can make a decent argument, in fact, a pretty strong one, that at the foundation of each of these temptations is a challenge to Jesus' identity. And in order to come out on top, Jesus has to know how to be himself in God. Spoiler alert, Jesus won. It's kind of the whole point. Well, let's look at the battle anyway. The first mask that Jesus was tempted to wear and that we can wear is a mask of performance. And the mask of performance asks the question, what can I do? What do I do? What can I do? So Jesus is fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights. After the fast, he goes into the wilderness and the, the book of Luke picks up in chapter 4, verses 2 through 4 and says this, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Let's take note of the order of operations in this statement here. If you are the son of God, was stated before, command the stone to become bread. Now I think eating is a pretty powerful temptation. Jesus fasted for 40 days and nights. Bro, I'm hungry after 40 minutes. But Satan didn't say, Burger King, King of Kings, Burger King, right there. If you are the Son of God. It was a temptation to be defined by his miraculous power and the things that he can do. And our culture offers us the same temptation, doesn't it? When we meet someone, first thing we say is, what's your name? And the second thing we often say is, what do you do? We are defining people by what we do, by performance. And whether we care to admit it, to admit it or not, after they respond to what do I do, we begin to assess one another or judge one another on how that job title or response makes us sound. Are we successful? Are we wealthy? Are we valuable? Do we provide value to one another? Or am I wasting my time with you? It's a temptation to mask ourselves with performance. It's a powerful temptation. I think there are two extremes to this. First, we can have an unhealthy temptation to be defined by performance when we are proud of what we do, too proud of what we do or what we can do. So if telling people what you do fills you up with pride in a way that causes you to elevate yourself above other people, then we're probably wearing a mask of performance. And at the other end of the spectrum, we can also be tempted by a mask of performance being defined by what we do or don't do 
when we're too ashamed or embarrassed to talk about what we do. When someone asks us what we do and we don't want to respond or we try to avoid the question in the first place, then perhaps we're allowing ourselves to be, be, be defined by our lack of performance. Now, it's weird for me as a pastor because it's kind of a polarizing job in today's world. So I find myself on different ends of the spectrum on different days of the week. On Sunday, it's a good day. I met my guy Joshua this morning. He was like, hey, how, how long have you been coming to this church? Well, you know, I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. But when I'm meeting friends throughout the week or trying to make friends uh, through my sports card hobby, not exactly excited to tell everybody, hey, guys, guess what I do? <laughs> Mostly because people get weird after I tell them I'm a pastor. And it's hard to connect after that. But part of me is like, man, I don't want to get into a debate today. I just want to make friends first. It's a temptation to be defined by my performance and what I do and what I can do versus avoiding what I do and what I can't do. And we need to be aware of this mask of performance and allowing our, ourselves to be defined by this. Second mask we can wear is a mask of possessions. And this is a mask that asks the question, what do I have? So let's keep reading this account in Luke. Brief side note. In Luke, he leaves out the phrase, if you are the son of God from the second temptation. But in Matthew, he actually repeats it again. So we know that Satan started this out by once again saying, if you are the son of God, do you really know who you are? Do you really know how to be yourself? And here's how it continues, verses 5 through 8. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me and I give it to you and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now we're impressed by riches in today's society. We're extremely impressed when a guy can tweet, I'm going to go buy Twitter and have the money to back it up. But how much more valuable is everything in the world? This is the temptation being presented to Jesus. A temptation for possessions, to be defined by what he has. And we are tempted to be defined by what we have too. A recent commercial highlighted this. It was a Super Bowl commercial. And it starred Tommy Lee Jones, Rashida Jones, Leslie Jones, and Nick Jones. <laughs> With a song by a guy named Tom Jones playing in the background called It's Not Unusual. I want to get down. I want to do the Carlton. Somebody might walk up on stage and slap me. Anyway, <laughs> it's all about keeping up with the Joneses. To keep up with the Joneses is to compare ourselves to our neighbors or the people around us on the basis of our material wealth and possessions. And if you are beyond the Joneses, I guess, then you're doing well. It's judged that you're successful. And if you can't keep up with the Joneses, then you are pressured to have more, to buy more, to possess more. And this temptation is strong throughout America and maybe particularly in Las Vegas. 
Derek and I uh, went on a family walk yesterday, and I was looking for this house. They didn't do it yesterday. But uh, we've got a neighbor down the street. They leave their garage open a lot. And they leave their garage open because they have two brand-new Teslas parked inside. I bet they use Twitter, huh? Anyway, it's funny to me that they've got these incredible cars and terrible security. Like, I hope you all aren't taking a nap because I could just take the keys. Great cars, terrible security, and potentially terrible insecurity. Now, I don't know for sure. I don't know them. I just know that their garage works sometimes and sometimes it doesn't. We want to define ourselves by the things that we have, our material possessions. If our mood rises when we have nicer things than other people, a bigger house, a nicer car, we wear nicer clothes, we're wearing a nicer bag. I said I'm in sports cards when I have better cards than someone. If we allow ourselves to be swelled with pride and joy when we have nicer things, then we're wearing a mask of possession, being possessed by our possessions. And when we shrink as a person, we feel small and insignificant because the Joneses have a bigger house with two Teslas parked in the garage, then we're still allowing ourselves to, find, to be defined by the things that we don't have. And if we don't get this mask under control, then it can run us broke. Beware of the mask of possessions. Third mask, popularity. What do people think of me? Here's the last of the three temptations. Luke chapter, nine, uh, chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And he took him to Jerusalem <clears throat> and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So, how does this connect to popularity? Let's imagine the scene for a moment. Satan takes Jesus to the top of the temple and says, throw yourself down. And this temple here is a center of Jewish life and activity. Obviously a religious center, but it's also a commerce center because there's a marketplace there. Jesus wasn't exactly a fan of it. Some tables were involved. Uh, it's also a center of learning. The Holy Scriptures and other Hebrew literature was stored there like a library. And it's a government center because the Jewish tribunal or the Sanhedrin met there at the temple. So there's tons of people here, including Jerusalem's biggest influencers. And Jesus and Satan stand there at the top. Satan says to him, jump. Feeling froggy, jump. And if Jesus jumped off, and maybe a few people would start to see him fall, then he begins to float and fly with all of the biggest influencers watching. I imagine he'd become the talk of the town and he'd be pretty popular. It might even convince some people that he was the Messiah. But Jesus came to change hearts, not just opinions. Unfortunately, Many of us are addicted to the opinions of other people. <clears throat> so we think 
extra, extra hard about what we say in a conversation. We want ourselves to sound witty and clever. Or we carefully manicure our presentation of ourselves on social media. And we try to present ourselves in the best possible light in person or in social media. And we take our kids home in the car. We tell them, don't say that kind of thing. You, you, you make us look bad. It's a mask of popularity. A compliment causes us to come alive. And a critique crushes our souls. We're allowing ourselves to be defined by what people think of us. Uh, it wasn't exactly planned this way, but um, we bought these jackets, me and the college students, because we're cool like that. That's what people think of me. I bought this sweater in Oregon when we went there for the college conference. And I put it on, and we go through the conference, and I realize that I feel a little funny. And as I'm going up, and I'm cheering on my friends, this feeling grows. And I realize that I feel this way because I had been the conference speaker. And I know exactly what it's like to be patted on the back. And this year, it wasn't my turn. But I wanted it to be. I wanted people to think highly of me and my ability to turn to Scripture and talk about God. Somehow, my heart is so evil that I made talking about God about me. And I was allowing myself to be defined by what people thought of me. And God allowed me to see that so he could take this mask off of me. So what mask does he want to take off of you? You know, we wear these masks to create this false self that we use to present ourselves to the world. And these masks, they fail to define us. They're incapable of creating identity because they're beyond our control. And they're fickle and they're subject to change constantly. Yet we try to use them anyway. And an old uh, Trappist monk and scholar, his name was Thomas Merton, he wrote about our tendency to do this in the end result. So here's what he says. I love to clothe this false self and I wind experiences around myself with pleasures and glory like bandages in order to make myself visible to myself and to the world as if I were an invisible body that could only become visible when something visible covered its surface. But there is no substance under the thing with which I am clothed. I am hollow. And when they are gone, there will be nothing left of me but my own nakedness and emptiness and hollowness. The masks of performance and possessions and popularity, they can't help us to be ourselves. They will fail. We need to recognize our masks so we can remove them. But there's a beautiful thing that happens when we start to take these masks off. You, you can think about wearing a mask, whether it's for some costume party or Halloween or cosplay at a comic book convention, if you're into that. A mask, when you're wearing it, it distorts your view. But when you start to take the mask off, 
you also start to see a little more clearly. You can see God more clearly. You can see yourself more clearly. And if we remove our masks, then God can reveal who we're made to be. God reveals who we're made to be when we meet him without our masks. So Jesus shows up publicly in front of everybody, Luke chapter 3. And he already knows who he is. He already knows what he's all about. And his sense of self-identity is so strong that he resists temptation from the devil face to face. And then he goes and has a public ministry where he heals everybody and their mom. And he handles ridicule and praise in a balanced and perfect way. And he fulfills the mission of God. So something must have happened in the gap between the birth of Christ and the baptism of Christ to teach him how to be himself. Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about that gap. In fact, we only get one specific event. But I think that event might be enough. So let's read about it. Luke chapter 2, we'll do verses 42 and 43, then 48 and 49. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Didn't you both have an angel check in with you to let, me, let you know what I was all about? I don't think, he's not being sassy. We, we read he was 12. <clears throat> and we kind of assume he's reading it in a 12-year-old voice. <clears throat> I know how I was when I was 12. But I think this is very literal. Didn't you know I came here on a mission? And then the next scripture reveals his heart. It says he went home with them to Nazareth and he was submissive to them. But Jesus knew exactly who he was and exactly what he came to do. And this is the only moment we get. Apart from this moment at a temple when he was 12, the word of God is silent on the life of Jesus. And I do think that's on purpose because I think that's exactly how Jesus learned to be himself. Jesus lived in the silence and obscurity of Nazareth. And most of us know that when you leave the bright lights of the city, especially a city like Las Vegas behind, and you go out at night and you drive away toward Mount Charleston or something, some of us, we, me and Manny, there, there he is, we, we fish at Willow Beach. We fished for past tense. More kids have come since then. When you leave the brightness of the city, the night sky becomes a lot more clear. And Jesus lived away from the noise and the bright lights of Jerusalem and the pressures that would tell him, hey, be popular and perform and possess. And because he was away from all of that pressure, he was able to see God more clearly and see himself more clearly. So by the time he's 12 years old, he has this incredible understanding of who he is. He knows how to be himself. And that's incredible for any person. But he's a 12-year-old. Now, when we think about Jesus in moments like this one, we tend to allow our mind to drift toward the fact that Jesus is fully God. But Jesus was also fully man. He needed to be in order to empathize with us and pay the price for our sin. 
So he knows what we go through. And if Jesus, who is fully man, fully human, can learn to be himself with God in the silence, then we can too. Jesus met with God the Father without a mask, and he learned to be himself. And if we want to learn how to be ourselves, then I think it's going to involve just as much unlearning as it does learning. Because we need to unlearn. We need to forget how to define ourselves the way the world tells us to define ourselves. We need to unlearn the masks of our achievements. And for some of us, that means we need a little bit of silence. We need to distance ourselves from culture sometimes. So pray about it. Perhaps God will call you to take a break from social media. Perhaps God will call you to take a break from a show or two in order to be with him, to ignore the noise and see him clearly and see ourselves clearly. We're made in the image of God. We are made to look like him. Therefore, we become the best versions of ourselves as we become more like God. As we become more like Jesus, we become the best versions of ourselves. Being more loving and more patient and more kind, it makes Matt a better version of Matt. And exercising self-control, all of this makes us more like Jesus in the best possible versions of ourselves. So we turn down the noise so we can see God clearly. And then we go to him in his word and in prayer and we see God. And then as we see God, we start to reorient ourselves to him one step at a time. It makes me think of, I'm going to have to do it again, huh? All the things that I had to set up for Allie and all the things I'll have to set up for Astrid. The toys and the equipment, it's an individual piece, individual unit in a box, but there's a model. And as I put it together, I take a break, and I'm, we've talked about this, I'm not good at putting things together. I take a break, and I reference the model. And the more I reference the model, the more this individual piece is going to become its perfect self. And because we're made in the image of God, we are made to reorient ourselves to the model. To Jesus. And as we look back at Jesus and back at ourselves and back at Jesus and back at ourselves, back to his word, then back at our lives, back to him in prayer, then back to the things we say to ourselves. As we do it again and again and again, we become the best possible versions of who God made us to be. And then when we gain this clearer understanding of ourselves, of, of God, we look at ourselves in the context of God and in the context of his people and his community. I will see ourselves a lot more clearly too. Somebody from the worship team can come and we'll, we'll sound spiritual and we'll wrap up shortly afterward. But when we look at ourselves, we'll see how God wired us. We'll see how God wired our personality, for example. And we need to see God clearly so we can see ourselves clearly. Otherwise, we will idealize our strengths and ignore our weaknesses. I think the vast majority of people have a tendency to do that. We need to see ourselves clearly. God helps us to do that. God also helps us to see the passions and the gifts that he's placed inside of us. To where eventually we find a place in his body. In his church, in his community. 
And that's when we start to gain a sense of this word we like to use. It's, it's calling, this purpose. Uh, the theologians of old, they like to use the word vocation. It describes who God calls us to be in relation to what God calls us to do. We need to be able to see these things clearly. And they say that our, our vocation, our calling, it lies at the intersection of our deepest gladness and the world's deepest need. And when we can understand how God made us and what makes us most glad and sets our hearts on fire, and then when we look at where the world is burning, we start to see that's who God called me to be. That's where I'm supposed to be. And when we have this clear understanding of God and of ourselves, we also gain a clearer understanding of our own emotions. We have emotions because God has emotions. And we're made in his image. At different points in the Old Testament, God is happy and rejoices. Then he gets mad. And then he's sorrowful and regretful. And Jesus comes in the New Testament, God in flesh, doing all the same things. Feeling all the same things. Not necessarily reacting the same way, though. Feelings are a piece of the puzzle. When you talk about a puzzle piece, a single piece of a puzzle is insufficient to be the entire picture. So feelings are not everything. And if you take a single piece of a puzzle and throw it away, that puzzle will never be complete. Feelings cannot be ignored either. So we should allow ourselves to be emotional and feel before God without censoring them, then we do what the Apostle John says. John, by the way, is a very feely guy. The apostle whom Jesus loved, according to John, is John. And he wrote in 1 John 4, 1, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Plural. It refers to supernatural spirits, and don't we have spirits too? We need to test our own spirits. And after we allow ourselves to feel, without censoring it, and we test the spirit, our own spirits, then we respond the way that Jesus would have responded. And we allow God, at times, in a healthy context, to speak to us through what we're feeling. But every single part of us makes the most sense in God. How do we be ourselves? How can we be ourselves in the God who caused us to be? Identity doesn't come from the things that mask us. Identity comes from the God who makes us. And if we will recognize and remove our masks, then God will reveal who he has made us to be. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, you love us and you made us as individual people. And so many of us at different times have been shackled with a mask on our face. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring freedom in this moment. Help us to recognize when we are wearing a mask, a performance possession or popularity and take our masks off so that you can reveal 
to us who you've made us to be and show us how to be ourselves. In a moment of response, if we can just keep heads bowed and eyes closed so we can come before God in honesty and humility and even brokenness. If you feel like God was showing you this morning what masks you wear, then I'd like to pray a prayer of freedom. But freedom comes first when we confess our sin to God. So if you feel like any of these masks, the performance, the possessions, the popularity, it, you're wearing it, whether you wanted to or not, if you think that's you, and I talked about mine, then with heads bowed and eyes closed, would you just slip up your hand so we can pray together? My hand is up, guys. My hand's up. And I only talked about one thing that I struggle with, but there's more than one. God, thank you for the beautiful and humble hearts here confessing before you that we allow ourselves to be defined by different masks. Lord, I pray that you would gracefully remove these things from us. Remove them from every part of our spirit and soul and body. Free us, God, from definition according to the standard of this world and replace with it a definition that can only come from you. And Lord, I pray that because we've offered our masks to you, Lord, that you would make us into the whole people you've called us to be. Change us, O oh God, from the inside out. Cause us to walk free and let us experience the fullness of who you want us to be. Starting now. And as this week continues on, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would remind us when that mask starts to make its way back over to our face so we can throw it away. Thank you for setting us free to be ourselves in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to pray for one more thing this morning. If you're here and you don't have that personal relationship with Jesus, I want to give you that opportunity. So if you want to start following Jesus, some people call this being born again, being a Christian. If you want to make that decision to have your own relationship with God, then I'd like to ask you to raise your hand on the count of three. One, two, three. Okay. We're all family today. Just wanted to make sure. We can all look up. We are not defined by the things that mask us. We are defined by the God who makes us. So as we seek God this week, let's ask him to help us be 